0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Lord, we thank you for your presence here this morning, and I thank you for your constant provision in our lives. Uh, And I pray, Lord, your blessing over every gift, every giver, that you would grow your kingdom and not our own, and that we would be like-minded with you as we seek to grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. A uh, dozen announcing, but next week is Easter Sunday. So, so take advantage of that. If you have uh, somebody in your life that uh, may not go to church any of the other three hundred and sixty-four days of the year, but that's the one day that they might say yes. Try to bring them next week, and let's see some people uh, give their lives over to Christ, because that's uh, that's what we're that's what we're all about. Next week is celebrating Jesus and and bringing people into His kingdom. So, uh, one announcement this morning. And that is the lady small group is going to move from Tuesday nights to Wednesday mornings. So that's beginning April 19th. If you're interested in that, it'll be Wednesday mornings here at the church at 10 a.m. And Barb is on the back wall there waving. If you're interested in that, just talk to her. So with that saying, let's jump right in. Lord, I pray that you speak this morning. Uh, Open our hearts and our ears and our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today is Palm Sunday, and churches across America, across the world, are celebrating Jesus' triumphant entry uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, however, we talked about Palm Sunday a few weeks back, so this is not going to be a prototypical uh, Palm Sunday message. It'll probably be more, a, little, a little more akin to a Good Friday message than that. That's because we've been going through the Gospel of John chapter by chapter, uh, and we looked at Palm Sunday when we were in John 12 several, several weeks ago. Uh, Today, we're looking at three chapters. So it's John 17 through 19. That's the most we've tried to tackle in a single week. And spoiler alert, uh, we're not covering all three chapters. That's why I'm encouraging you to read it because we're spending most of our time this morning on a single verse. And in the coming week, I encourage you to read John chapter 20. Uh, It talks about the resurrection of Christ, and that's where we'll be next week. So with all that said, what I want to do this morning... To begin John chapter 19, uh, we're going to start with the crucifixion in John 19, and we're going to work our way backwards. And, and to do that, I want to look at something that we looked at three months ago when we started this uh, series in John chapter 1. Uh, and this is going to be kind of a brief synopsis of what we talked about this uh, that week. So it, it'll sound familiar to some of you if you weren't here. Uh, and you want to see kind of a more detailed explanation of what we're about to talk about, it's on Facebook and it's in our podcast. It was in the John 1 week. Uh, So uh, that week what we talked about was how John begins his gospel in a very unique way. What he does is the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are a prelude to the rest of the chapter, to the rest of the gospel, and what that means is, Uh, In John chapter 1, the first 18 verses, he gives an introduction to everything that is about to come in the rest of the gospel. Everything that occurs from verse 19 of chapter 1 through the end of the gospel of John is the unfolding of those first 18 verses. And what John does in this prelude is John immediately connects his audience with Genesis chapter 1. He does this by beginning uh, the gospel of John in uh, John 1.1 with the words, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. And and Genesis chapter one, of course, course starts by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this was not a random coincidence. This was a literary and a teaching technique that we find all throughout the gospel called a rimez, And it's extremely common. We find it all over the Bible, and it's the writer's way of connecting his audience with that phrase. So his intention here is to connect his audience to Genesis chapter one. Now what I love that's happening is Matthew begins his, uh, his gospel by tracing the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham. And Luke traces it back to Adam. And John says it doesn't begin with Abraham or Adam. Actually, Genesis, uh, Jesus was there at the moment of creation. And in fact, He was the agent of creation because all things were created by him and through him. But what John actually does, and we talked about this in that first week, is he doesn't simply connect with his audience through those first three words, uh, just referencing it in that one way. What he does is he goes so far as to write his entire prologue using the same poetic format of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, just like the first 18 verses of John 1, is written in a form of poetry that was common uh, in in the Hebrew language, and we looked at it three months ago, but just quickly we're going to look at it again because it leads us to the passage we're going to this morning. But if we look at the literary structure of this poem in Genesis chapter 1, this is what we find. The first day, God created the night and day. The second day, he created the sky. The third day, he creates the land. The fourth day, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, which fill the night and the day. The fifth day, he creates the birds, which fill the sky. The sixth day, he uh, creates the animals and mankind, which cre- uh, fills the land. And then on the seventh day, he would rest. It, the Bible says the work was finished, and he rests. And what we have is this common poetic structure that goes ABC, ABC. D And D is this uh, this note of completion where it actually says, we find it in Genesis 2.2, it says, God finished the work. Now that's important here. It says, God finished the work and he rested. Now it's the same word or the same phrase we find in Exodus 40 after Moses completes the tabernacle. It says, Moses finished his work. Now that's important this morning. Not only does John begin his gospel by alluding to Genesis chapter 1, but he actually writes it in the exact same poetic format. And if we don't recognize that, then John chapter 1 is really confusing and seems really out of order. Because it starts like this in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. On to verse 6, it says, A man named John came to testify. On to verse 11, it says, Some received him, some didn't. Now, if we didn't know that this was that poetic structure, it would seem out of order because we get to verse 14 and it says, that word became flesh. In verse 15, it says, John testified concerning him. In verse 16, it says, we have received him. So what we have now, all, we have ABC, ABC, and all we need is that note of completion, That note that that wraps up the poem and sums up everything that the poem is talking about. And this is where John veers off course because he begins to wrap up the poem in verse 18, but he doesn't stick to the script. What John does in verse 18 is in the original language, your Bible won't show this, but in the original language, he actually finishes this poem with an incomplete sentence. It's actually finished with a a sentence, an an unfinished sentence, and I think that was on purpose, because what John is doing is he's copying that format that says ABC, ABC, but when he gets to D, he says, we're not there yet. So this poem is all about God becoming flesh, and, and John never gives that summation statement, that statement that says, and it was finished, at least not yet. Not until we come to today's passage, and it comes after Jesus' ministry, after His teachings, after His betrayal and His trial, and He's been hanging on the cross for several hours now, and we get to John 19, beginning verse 28. It says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And my belief, church, is that is the closure. That is the summation where John in chapter 1 left off with an incomplete sentence to kind of say it's not done yet. This story of God becoming man, of the word becoming flesh, it's not finished yet. And so he tells the entire story of Christ and we get to Jesus on the cross and his last words are the same words that we find in Genesis 2.2. The words that say, it is finished. Now it's finished. Now the work is finished. You have seen what it looks like for God to become man. And what I want to do is take that single verse and focus on it this morning. Why did Jesus say, it is finished? And what did he actually mean when he said it is finished? Because uh, if we step back, uh, it actually seems like there might be more appropriate times for Jesus to say that it is finished. Uh, if he is saying that the power of sin and death is finished, then it would have been more appropriate after the resurrection, because that was the moment that death was defeated, was at the resurrection. So he could have come out of the tomb and said, it is finished. Death, hell, and the grave are finished. Or if it were about his earthly ministry, his time on the earth, then it should have come right before his ascension into heaven. It should have come right before he went into heaven and said, now it is finished. Now I am done. Uh, so why why does Jesus at this moment on the cross say, it is finished? Now to answer that, we're going to look at the specific language Uh, that he used in this moment. And just as importantly, we're going to look at the language that he did not use. Uh, So there may be more, but just studying this week, I found six six different words used in the New Testament in the Greek language that are translated into finished. Uh, And you might say that, that that's kind of confusing, but Uh, We we kind of have that in the English language. If I say that I'm going to throw this cup of coffee at you, I might say I'm going to throw it at you or I'm going to chuck it at you or I'm going to toss it towards you or I'm going to lob it towards you or I'm going to fire it at you. They all mean the same thing. They just mean it differently. So we have these six words in the Greek language that that all mean to be finished, but there are slight variations uh, in the specifics. So one word means to complete, Another means to complete entirely. Another means to fully accomplish. And then there's, there's a word, um, uh, "genomei," I believe it is. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, but this is the word that Jesus uses most often when he's talking about completing something or finishing something. It's used more than 100 times throughout the Gospels. And it simply means to be finished or to be brought to pass, to be brought to fulfillment. And while of those six words, Jesus uses this more than any other, this is not the word that he used on the cross. Uh, Instead, he uses a word that's far more rare, a word we only find a few times in the Gospels. It's a word, teleo, which means to bring to a close, to finish, or to complete. But it's the context of this word that actually shines so much light on it because the context of this word is that it's usually used in relation to a debt that is owed. And in fact, if you continue with the definition, it also means to pay or to fulfill a debt. Uh, Archeologists have actually uh, found countless receipts uh, from as early as the second century after Christ. uh, And you can find these online. Um, And what they've discovered is on a huge number of these receipts, especially on tax receipts, there's an abbreviation for this word at the top of the receipt, teleo, which means the debt has been paid. The taxes have been paid. And I believe that when Jesus hung on the cross, the reason he chose this word moments before he gave up his spirit, his cry was saying, now the debt has been paid. Now it, it has been finished because in this specific moment, he hasn't yet overcome death, hell, and the grave. That's coming in three days. And he hasn't finished up everything he wants to do on earth. That's coming in 43 days. But in this very moment, the, the debt for my sin and the debt that you owe for your sin, the debt that created separation between God and man, was finished. It was paid completely completely. And in full, there was nothing left that needs to be paid. And these are not the the words of a defeated man on the cross. This is a cry of victory right before Jesus gives up his spirit. It is finished. You owe nothing more. In fact, Hebrews 12, 2 says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Uh, and, And it's fascinating to me that Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, says... He chooses a specific phrase. He could have chosen any of them, but he chooses the one that means it's been paid. The Bible says the wages of sin and death, or uh, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It was a cost that we could not pay. It was a cost that Jesus did not owe, but he paid it, and he said it's paid it is finished. Now, there are a couple more things I want to show you here in this single verse before we move on. If we put John nineteen thirty back on the screen, it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is another interesting phrase. I wish we could go through the gospel of John verse by verse and spend about a decade on it, but... This phrase that he bowed his head, it's a phrase that Jesus used on one single occasion in the Gospels. It was in Matthew uh, chapter 8. I think it's also in Luke, uh, but it's the same story. It says when he had re- or, uh, Matthew eight nineteen. Greg, if we have that. It says, when a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head this is the only time Jesus ever used this phrase to, to lay his head and he was using it in this context of saying the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and John when he's writing about Jesus giving up his spirit on the cross says he found a place to lay his head finally finally he bowed his head and laid his head uh, interesting to me but the language is not a depiction of death it's an image of rest if we go back to what Jesus said, He said, I've got nowhere to lay my head. It's an image of rest. And one more thing I want to show you here is the Bible specifically says that He gave up His spirit. It was not taken from Him. And this is the completion of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And on in verse 18, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We find that in the cross. It says he gave up his spirit. He did this willingly church. No one gave, no one took his life. He gave it. He accepted the cross. The cross was a, a death that was only intended for two groups of people, the lowest class or the worst criminal, and even outside of scripture, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus called it a torture only fit for slaves. It was designed to be a public, a slow, a painful, and a humiliating death, and it was one that Jesus accepted when he endured, but not one that he looked forward to. Uh, if you read all of the Gospels, what we find is the Bible says Jesus was deeply troubled in the days leading up to the cross. And it's a, a phrase that means uh, from the pit of his stomach, he was, it was just a knot in his stomach. The Bible says he was sweating like drops of blood. Uh, it, it says that he was crying to the Father, if there's any other way, yet not my will, but yours. And now knowing all of this, church, knowing all of this is on the horizon in his life, Jesus gives us John chapter 17. Um, If we were to dissect our prayer lives, for most of us, the content of our prayer would be in one of three categories. It's in what has happened, what's going to happen, or what could possibly happen. Uh, A lot of our prayers reflect what has already happened. And if you think about this week, uh, the, the tragedy that took place in Nashville, or you're thinking about the tragedy that even took place of uh, the road in Oil City here. We think about those things that have taken place and they drive us to prayer. And that should be the case. We should be praying for those whose hearts are hurting uh, in this moment. A lot of our prayer reflects what has happened. A lot of our prayer reflects what might happen. It reflects our anxieties and our worries and our fears and what could take place. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 4, he said, don't be anxious about anything but give it to God in prayer. Pray about those things that you're worried about taking place. But very often our prayers reflect what lies ahead. Uh, So if you've ever had a job interview, then you've probably prayed for that job interview when you know that it's coming. And you've probably asked other people, hey, this is coming up on Wednesday. Can you pray that it goes well? we, We pray for what's on the horizon. But when we get to John chapter 17 and the cross is in front of Jesus, he's pouring out his heart, he's wearing it on his sleeve, and he doesn't mention the cross one time. There are two subjects in his prayer in John chapter 17. First is the 11 remaining disciples, and the other is anyone who would ever believe, which would be you. Do you recognize the the pain, Renee, if you would come, the, the pain that is on the horizon that he's about to, through the, the most painful, humiliating, slow death that you could endure in that moment. And he's not even praying about it. He's praying for his disciples, God, protect them and, and God, uh, uh, keep them safe, the Bible says. And um, Then he gets to verse 20 and he says, Father, my prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me. Pay attention to this. So that they may be brought to complete unity. And when they are brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, the thing about unity, um, uh, if you're trying to tune a guitar so that it all, uh, it's all in unison, if you come into to, to the, the worship team's practice or on Sunday morning, what, what you won't find is Brian taking his guitar and passing it around to everyone with a musical instrument and saying, hey, tune your instrument my guitar but they'll take a single tuner and everyone on the team can tune themselves to that one device and even though they weren't tuning to one another they are in complete unity and as a church when the Bible calls us to complete unity doesn't mean I tell Pat and Pat tells Eileen and Eileen tells Brian and until it gets all the way over here and then everyone's on the same page. All it means church is glorify God. That, that his kingdom would be your greatest priority. And if your priority is the kingdom of God and my priority is the kingdom of God, we are in complete unity. The Bible says when we get to this place of complete unity as a church, then the world will know. If you look at the church worldwide today, you don't think of unity. You think of hundreds of denominations, some of which don't like each other podcast that part Greg but you know what when it comes down to the semantics of things I don't really care if you don't agree with me or if another denomination doesn't agree because I'm not here to push a denomination say as a church can we come together and glorify the name of Jesus Christ and if there's a Catholic church down the road that comes together and says let's glorify the name of Jesus Christ and a Methodist church that says let's glorify the name of Jesus Christ then I'm okay with that that is unity church and as a church as a people in this place can we make it our greatest priority in this life and in this room to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. No? <laughs> Can you stand with me? Lord, we are so appreciative and so. but as an opportunity and I pray you use us mightily for your kingdom Lord in Jesus name Amen so, Church, excited to see you next week on Easter one quick announcement if you have kids or grandkids up to the 5th grade in Kids Church they're having a big Easter service with over or with 200 Easter eggs hidden so uh, bring them out and that will be a fun time for them no adults, Jen You have to be in here. All right. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.